Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The hurricane that hit New England on September 21, 1938, was the most devastating weather event in our region's history. 38 was a combination of a dangerous storm surge, a lot of inland flooding, and 100-mile-an-hour wind that made it all the way into Vermont and New Hampshire. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll revisit the hurricane of 38 and look at how our region's guarding against future disasters. As we look to replace our aging infrastructure, we really can't just replace what's there. We really have to look and engineer for the next 100 or 200 years. We'll also talk about the deals struck by Northeast states to cut carbon emissions from power plants, and we'll explore the sounds of nature, including one sound that sounds pretty good if you're a moose. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. The New England states have pretty aggressive goals to try to combat climate change. In just a few minutes, we'll learn more about a new deal to cut carbon emissions even more. But first, let's dig into one of the technologies that is driving that change. For our energy series, The Big Switch, we've reported on the need to find storage for the extra energy that gets produced by wind or solar plants sometimes to balance out the fact that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. Giant grid-scale batteries are getting cheaper and more sophisticated and could help to transform the region's power grid. Fred Bever has more. For more than a half century, a massive oil-fired plant has been churning out electricity from an island in the heart of Maine's Casco Bay, where sailors use its towering smokestack for navigation. The old generator is expensive to run and dirtier than new technologies, so these days it comes on only a few times a year. Nonetheless, since December, the wires on the island have been humming pretty much nonstop. It's the 60 hertz hum we engineers call. So it's, it's a sound we like to hear because we know we're running. <laughs> That's Jeff Plew, project manager for Nextera, a national electricity company that focuses on renewable energy. Here in the shadow of the old fossil fuel plants, he led the development of New England's biggest yet battery. Plew says grid-scale batteries can serve many functions. The setup here helps stabilize the frequency of the electricity that flows through the regional grid at that 60 hertz rate. We'll go into the battery room here now. Inside a former warehouse, eight concrete blocks, big as cargo containers, house a total of 1,300 individual lithium-ion batteries, each about the size of a desk computer. They throw off some heat. Just like your phone, you can feel it kind of getting hot. We have cooling systems in place just to maintain the equipment at their optimal operating parameters. Every four seconds, computers at grid operator ISO New England's Holyoke Mass headquarters tell the batteries here whether to pull in energy and store it or to discharge it back onto the grid. 
It helps to balance the inevitable mismatch that occurs between the amount of energy generators are pushing onto the grid at any given moment and the amount the customers are taking from the grid. It can be much more efficient to ask energy storage systems like this to fine-tune the grid's frequency than, say, to try to toggle a big natural gas plant's output up and down. It's just on a much faster ramp than you'd see at a typical generator. A typical generator might ramp at a rate of 1 to 2 to 10 megawatts maybe per minute. This, this battery can do that full range in, in a second or less. Ideally, Nextera can provide the service at a price that reduces costs for consumers and still make a profit. And this is really just the beginning. Battery technology is advancing quickly, partly thanks to the rise of electric vehicles, and costs are coming down. Stephen Rourke, a senior system planner at ISO New England, says they've just really started studying the technology. <laughs> it's just been really in the last year that uh, we've had grid-scale battery in our study queue at all. So, in fact, the Casco Bay project up in Maine was the first of the, of the grid-scale batteries to go through the study process. It won't be the last. There are now eight more such projects seeking study and approval by ISO New England, and a lot is happening on a smaller scale, too. On a former landfill in Rutland, Vermont, utility Green Mountain Power has paired a battery array with a solar array. Project manager Josh Castingay says the batteries can reduce the burden on the regional grid on high-demand days by delivering stored-up solar electricity directly to local consumers. One hot summer day last year, that peak shaving, as it's called, saved GMP customers some real money. And we discharged the batteries right at that right hour, lowered our demand overall, and just that one hour saved our customers close to 200000 bucks. On top of that, GMP's batteries solve a vexing renewable energy conundrum, how to handle surges and drop-offs in the bulk electricity that wind and solar plants deliver, depending on whether the wind is blowing or the sun is shining. Batteries can soak up excess energy when it's being produced and then push it onto the grid when the generators go silent. Those firming and smoothing abilities of the batteries allow energy produced by intermittent resources to match up with real-time system needs 24-7. Back in Maine, Nextera's Jeff Plew says they will be a significant driver for the next wave of wind and solar development. Gives, gives you the same abilities essentially as what you get from a traditional generator. It's, it is the holy grail for renewables. Nextera, for one, is grabbing the grail with both hands. It's proposed to pair batteries even bigger than the Casco Bay Array with wind turbines and solar generators in western Maine, and that's just one of several such projects that are being proposed around New England as state and regional climate policies seek to inject ever more renewable energy into the mix. That's Fred Bever of Maine Public Radio reporting. Those state and regional climate policies that Fred's talking about just got a boost as the nine states of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative announced a plan to cut power plant emissions another 30 percent. It's being hailed by environmental groups as one of the biggest efforts taken by states since President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord. Here's the Acadia Center's Peter Shattuck. This shows that states and regions are stepping up, picking up the climate banner, and leading. Uh, the Reggie states together comprise the world's sixth largest economy, and they just agreed to ambitious emissions reductions. That's the equivalent of taking 
over 28 million cars off the road for a year. But the negotiations did include a push and pull between New England states that wanted deeper emissions cuts and their partners in the Mid-Atlantic region. Here to talk about the deal is Katie Dykes. She's chair of the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority in Connecticut and chair of the board of directors of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I I want to go through the particulars of this new deal that's been struck between the states and the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative to uh, lower the amount of carbon that's put into the atmosphere. But but first, I think a lot of people, probably including myself, need to understand a little bit better what REGI is and how it works. So what is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative? Well, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or uh, REGI as it's affectionately known, is a uh, the nation's first market-based regulatory program to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. So this program focuses specifically on uh, the sector of our economy that generates electricity. It was put in place, you know, more than a decade ago, and the idea was uh, rather than putting, you know, limits uh, power plant by power plant on how much uh, each individual generator could pollute, this is a market-based program. So the the states that are participating, um, there's nine in the program today, uh, they get together, uh, collectively determine what we think is the right amount of carbon emissions that we think is reasonable for these power plants collectively to generate. And that's what we call our cap. And then uh, we auction off allowances um, up to that cap. And and allowances is basically a permission slip to pollute, uh, to emit one ton of greenhouse gases. Uh, Under this new program starting in 2021, um, will be 75 million uh, tons per year. So we'll divide that up among the states and and four times a year we'll hold an auction and we'll auction off those allowances uh, to the highest bidder. And what's really exciting about the Reggie program is that the revenue that we get from selling those allowances, uh, each state uh, takes their share of that revenue and we use it to fund programs uh, like energy efficiency, uh, renewable energy programs that help to further clean up the grid uh, and lower customer bills. So, so that, that uh, amount that you just mentioned is part of the new plan that's just been announced from 2020 right. to 2031. What's the cap at right now? How is it working up until yeah. 2020? So, so when, the, when the program was first started uh, in the late 2000s, the cap was at 165 million tons per year. In 2012, uh, the Reggie states got together and said, wow, we saw that emissions were actually tracking down uh, faster than our cap was reducing. So we saw the opportunity to reduce the cap again uh, at that point to 91 million tons per year. And there was a commitment then to have that cap reduced 2.5% each year going out to 2020. Power generators can compete um, to reduce their emissions however they can. Obviously, it's only fossil fuel-fired uh, power plants that are generating uh, these greenhouse gas emissions. So they have to go out and purchase uh, these allowances in the marketplace. And every three years, we check the books and make sure that they have uh, you know, uh, allowances to cover every single ton of carbon emissions that they've, they've polluted. But what they do then, of course, they're reflecting that in the price uh, their bid price into the wholesale markets. And so the, the, uh, the, those resources that don't have, uh, have any carbon emissions, like renewable uh, wind and solar plants uh, in, and nuclear plants, for example, um, they don't have to go out and purchase uh, those allowances. Uh, so that gives them a competitive advantage again. Uh, uh, so, so they have a the, pricing advantage market. in the market against these, these fossil fuel burn, burning plants. Well, one of the things you said earlier is, is that the money that is gleaned from uh, these Reggie auctions 
is meant to come back to the states and get plowed into energy efficiency. The problem is, is that in our region, there are a number of states that face really tough financial situations. Right now, as we speak, mm -hmm. the state of Connecticut doesn't have a budget. It's <laughs> facing a budget deficit of a couple billion dollars. And the worries out there are that that money isn't going to go directly to the things it's supposed to be funding in Connecticut or, or other New England states, but it will instead go to, you know, just help balance the books into the general fund. So how how does Reggie guard against that? Yeah, well, we're, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, you know, as a Connecticut uh, energy official, we're watching very closely um, what the legislature is considering doing here. I, I think it would be tremendously damaging um, to the integrity of our programs if uh, if the legislature were to raid uh, the Reggie funds or the funds that we uh, provide for the utility uh, efficiency programs or the Green Bank. Um, in, in essence, sweeping those dollars uh, functions like um, an energy tax. And uh, when you're trying to seek revenue, you know, tax revenues um, through uh, electric bills, it's, it's one of the most regressive ways to do so because, you know, people can't, electricity is a, is a public necessity. People can't live without it. And we have many, uh, uh, you know, folks on fixed incomes uh, who, who may be paying, you know, 20, 30 percent of their monthly income um, for, for utilities, uh, you know, as it is now. So to the extent that uh, folks see those, those dollars there, uh, and and maybe tempted to uh, use them to contribute to addressing budget uh, budget issues, you know. I I I, I obviously <laughs> from my vantage point, um, I think that that can be uh, challenging for us to be able to meet our clean energy goals, but also um, very it's it's just a difficult place um, to to seek to raise revenue. We had a uh, the analysis group uh, did an independent report uh, about two years ago, and they looked at uh, the last three years of Reggie. Reggie's performance, and they found that the program overall was contributing $1.6 billion in net economic benefit um, to the states that participate. So not, not negative. We're talking about positive net benefits um, because this program is in existence. So that's, that's a really exciting uh, marker of success. There was, during the negotiation for this, this new plan that you came out with, I think a little bit of disagreement between the states. There are some states, Massachusetts being sort of in the forefront, saying we want to have uh, deeper cuts. We want to have the, the the caps reduced even more. And then there are other states pushing back against that. You know, some of the mid-Atlantic states that maybe rely more on coal-fired power plants. How exactly did that play out? And how did you arrive at the numbers that you came to for this new plan that will stretch from from 2020 to 2031? Mm -hmm. Well, there's there was certainly a lot of uh, press and stakeholder interest in what was happening in the deliberations between the states. I will say not all of it is, uh, you know, what's been reported is, is accurate as far as the uh, you know uh, the discussions that were going on in the room. I think what, what, what was, part's been inaccurate? Well, I'll, I'll just say I think there was there's been tremendous leadership um, across all of the states in uh, working to find a, uh, a commitment um, that uh, for this this next decade of the program that that meets all the various states' public policy goals. You know the Reggie states are a diverse group, and each state you know we differ in the makeup of our energy sectors. We span three different electricity markets, um, and different states have different needs and, and goals. Uh, and at the same time, you know, the Reggie states recognize the importance of coming together uh, because, you know, uh, by, by joining forces and having a regional program, uh, we can achieve greater reductions at a lower cost 
uh, than we would if we were doing this individually. So, you know, I think looking forward, um, we've got a great program, a great result. Uh, it's been nice to see uh, stakeholder sort of recognition of that, particularly in an era um, where, um, you know, just as, we, uh, as we've had this program review underway, we've seen a tremendous shift in the federal, uh, you know, climate policy happening. And, and, and I think the news coming out of the Reggie states uh, is that we're, we're, we've found consensus. We continue to work together. We see the benefits of working together uh, across party lines and, and across different energy markets, uh, and we're continuing to lead. And I think that we are also seeing now some new interest from other states uh, that may be looking either to uh, to stand up their own programs, potentially join with Reggie, uh, or emulate our model. And that's that's one of the most exciting things that I think the but, developments we're seeing in terms of state leadership. But you're not you're not discounting that that the states, the nine states that are currently part of Reggie, mm-hmm. did have some pretty different ideas that they're bringing to the table about how much they want to cut carbon emissions from this region. I think that there is a lot of focus on you know specific aspects of the program. Um, certainly, you know, there's a lot of different uh, features to the program in terms of uh, what's the uh, what, at what rate should the cap uh, redu- you know, uh, reduction occur? What percentage per year? You know, those are things that I think stakeholders focused on a lot. But when you look at the total package of what's come out of these deliberations among the states, there's, there's a lot of great innovation, I think, here that, uh, that reflects contributions from the, a variety of states that were participating in these discussions. One of the things that we're um, rolling out for the first time uh, in, this, in this program review is a new mechanism called a, an emissions containment reserve. Say that 10 times quickly. But um, what that does is uh, it will enable us, uh, if we see the prices for uh, allowances dipping down below what we would expect, it will allow the states to automatically withhold a certain number of allowances to keep the supply and demand for allowances in balance. Because what we've seen in our experience is that we continue to outperform uh, and the emissions are dropping faster uh, than we expect. So we don't do these program reviews you know, every year. Uh, so in the interim years, this emissions containment reserve will be operating uh, such that if prices fall below a certain threshold, uh, we can lock in further allowances at a reasonable price. And mm-hmm. those are the kinds of um, new developments coming out of the program review that I think are just as important uh, as you know, what what what's gathered garnered a lot of attention, which is you know uh, what what uh, what the percent for the reduction of the cap should be. This really does happen at a time in which there's quite a bit of um, concern amongst many people in the environmental community about the stance that the Trump administration has taken toward climate change as a whole. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm wondering what role you think Reggie plays in that national and international conversation. Sure, one message is that the state that there's a lot of stability at, at the state level in terms of our commitment. Uh, to market-based programs uh, like this one uh, that help us to reduce our carbon emissions. Um, It's a a bipartisan set of governors, uh, and, you know, this program has been in existence for a long time. We've proven out a model of successfully reducing carbon emissions, and and the recommitment that we've done now just shows that the states are continuing to lead uh, to reduce the carbon emissions coming out of the United States. You know, when we launched this program review in 2015, it was under a different uh, different administration uh, in Washington, and the Reggie states anticipated we'd be using this program to 
comply with the Clean Power Plan. But the, with the elections that occurred, you know, our commitment to uh, to Reggie and to continuing on this path um, has not changed. And in fact, the result here is more stringent, more ambitious than what uh, the Reggie states would have been required to do under the Clean Power Plan. And I think that reflects that the public policy goals, uh, for example, are the requirement we have in statute here in Connecticut to reduce carbon emissions 80 percent by 2050, uh, you know, is, uh, is a real driver um, of these policies. Thanks so much for joining us. I Thank you, it. as always. Katie Dykes, she's chair of the board of directors of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Coming up, as Houston begins its recovery from Hurricane Harvey, we'll remember the biggest storm to ever hit New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Hurricane Harvey marks America's biggest rain event and one of the most destructive natural disasters in history. Here in New England, despite recent big storms that caused damage, you have to go back in time a bit to find the worst storm to hit our region, September 21st, 1938. Back then, hurricanes didn't have names. This one hit Long Island first. It continued up the Connecticut Valley, plowing through western Massachusetts and Vermont in a matter of hours. The hurricane took 600 lives, but it also destroyed a thousand square miles of forest land. That environmental damage is the focus of the book 38, The Hurricane That Transformed New England. Author Stephen Long is founder of Northern Woodlands Magazine, and he writes on forestry and conservation in New England. Stephen, welcome to Next. Well, thanks for having me. First, let's talk about this hurricane of 1938. How did it compare with, with Hurricane Irene or Superstorm Sandy, Tropical Storm Harvey? I mean, how would you rate it as hurricanes go? Well, each, each hurricane has its own personality. And um, uh, Irene and Sandy um, were largely uh, rain and flooding events, some wind, um, at the start, but when a hurricane makes landfall, uh, typically it, uh, it its winds dissipate. Thirty-eight was a combination of a fantastically uh, dangerous storm surge, a lot of inland flooding, and hundred mile an hour wind that made it all the way into Vermont and New Hampshire. That's just totally unheard of for wind of that of that strength to come inland that far. So it was, a, uh, it was all three, um, flooding, storm surge, and uh, Category 2 winds way, way, way inland. Was New England prepared for a storm of that size at the time? People in New England didn't believe that hurricanes hit New England. That was something that hit uh, the Carolinas or Florida or the Gulf Coast. There hadn't been a hurricane to hit New England in two generations and the, the Boston Globe the next day referred to it as um, New England's first hurricane. Now, we know that that's not true, but, but it just shows you that, that people were not even thinking about this sort of thing. I'm wondering if you can uh, paint a picture for us of what the landscape of our region looked like back then. We've, we've done quite a bit of uh, 
reporting and conversation about the changing landscape of New England over time and how right now we're we're very forested. But in the 18th and 19th century, a lot of America, especially New England, was was cut down to the bone. A lot of trees were cut down for agriculture. I guess I'm wondering if you can say what New England looked like at the time and how many trees were around uh, back when this hurricane hit. So 1938 uh, saw... New England in in um, uh, a post agricultural phase mostly. So Massachusetts and New Hampshire in particular had been had been cleared for for agriculture in the previous century. But by the 1850s 1860s, um, farming had um, had had become less of a way of life. And so what happens when when farm fields um, stop being hayed, or you take the cows out out of the pasture. Trees grow in. You don't need to replant trees in New England. They just come in naturally, and so thousands and thousands of acres in Massachusetts and New Hampshire um, were filling up with pine trees. Pine trees are um, a great uh, pioneer species. They they colonize abandoned farm fields very very. Um, quickly, and so and, and pine grows tall and fast, and so a lot of the um, former farmland in New England was covered with with pine trees um, in 1938. You begin your book with a story of of Fred Hunt, a forester in New Hampshire, who was 14 when the hurricane hit, and his life was saved by a white pine tree. Tell tell us his story. Well, I interviewed Fred when he was in his late 80s, and he told me told me the story of what happened to him as a 14-year-old, and it was a, a, a fantastic story of a young boy going out and playing hooky on the day um, that the hurricane was to come later. Of course, no warning that a hurricane was on its route. Uh, but what what he was out there playing hooky and what had had uh, gotten his attention was that there was was a tremendous flood. So entirely different weather system had 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 flooded uh, much of New England in the three four days before September twenty first. So the town of Jaffrey, which was about fifteen miles away from his home in Ringe was underwater and Fred had heard that and so he wanted to go and and uh, and and see a town underwater he'd never seen such a thing so he went and spent 15 20 miles walking and and uh, by the time the day got got uh, day got done he was pretty whipped and he called his mother uh, to come pick him up and and she did and they were driving home and uh, that's when the wind started and there was a tree across the road, and, and they had to stop. And um, so um, she got out to see how the people up on the hill were doing, and she sent Fred home to check on, on her husband, Fred's dad. And so Fred was, was walking, uh, hustling home, when a, a, a large pine tree came down behind him, missed him by about 15 feet. But he'd never even heard the tree come down. It was so loud. The wind was howling so loudly. 
And so that tree went down, and he, he just happened to notice it, and he saw the wind. And then it came to him that that tree might be salvaged for him. And so what he did was he climbed in under that tree, and in the next 10 minutes, every single tree in the forest blew down around him. So he was, he was under the safe refuge of that big white pine when, when hurric- the Hurricane of 38 came through. You, you remind us that much of New England, especially at the time, had very active forestry. It had very active forestry and logging. What, what happened with all that wood? I, I can't imagine what they would have done with all of these downed trees and all of this excess lumber. Well, if you imagine all all of that on the ground, and you think of whatever the forest um, products infrastructure that was in place, um, th- this was um, uh, such a windfall to to use a silly word. Um, but uh, here we've 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 got much more than anybody could have possibly ever um, uh, harvested. And so it's all sitting there, and these, there's, there's the people who own this timber because it was almost entirely owned by individual people. Um, there wasn't much public land in, in uh, New England at that time. And so, so you've got all of these people who have, have lost their, their woodland bank accounts. People grew trees um, in order to, to make money from them. And so they were all on the ground. And if, if we just let market forces um, be the, the only game in town, nobody would have been paid a nickel for this wood because it was everywhere. It was a sea of wood on the ground. And so the um, federal uh, government, this was the New Deal uh, years, 1938, um, they, um, they, they stepped in in two ways. Um, one, they were very afraid of fire. And so in order to clear up um, all of the brush or as much of the brush that they, they could, um, they enlisted the WPA and the CCC, um, Works Progress Administration, and the Civilian Conservation Corps. So they had a ready uh, source of, of labor um, to help do the cleanup. So from September to March and April, um, they em- employed all of these people to, to, to help clean it up. It was something like five million man days put to the task of cleaning it up. It's remarkable governments stepping in in that way. And, and you mentioned the, the CCC and the WPA part, a big part of the cleanup effort. What other expectations did people have of the federal government at that time? There was no FEMA. Uh, you know, famously during Katrina, people heard that the federal government wasn't necessarily going to come in and help them right away, and, and people maybe had a different expectation. What was the expectation back then for, for help coming from the government? Well, I, you know, I, I think that the, you know, you had these, these uh, relief programs in place, and they, um, they were there um, um, and, and helped with the cleanup. But I think that, um, you know, th- there's um, not a lot, otherwise, not a lot of government uh, intervention. There was the Red Cross, of course, they were, they were involved, but it was mostly on a local basis where neighbors helped neighbors and everybody pitched in to clear the roads and, 
and got things going again. And, you know, the WPA was, was administered at the county level, so it wasn't like, you know, uh, you know a, a big group of, of people were, were, were trucked in to do, do the work. It was just they were there, and, the, and, and in conjunction with, with the federal government, they, they did this work. So, so looking at all the intervening years since 1938, what do you think that our region has done right and done wrong as we think about maybe another storm like this someday hitting New England? Well, we've, we've done quite a bit in terms of flood control um, structures, and so there's probably uh, a hundred plus new flood control stru- uh, structures that are in place. So we've done a fair amount of that um, to help try to contain the, the water. But as we saw with Irene, it wasn't enough. Irene was, uh, it dumped six or seven inches of rain, not a huge amount given what we're hearing is falling in Texas. And so, um, so six or seven inches of rain following a very, very wet summer, there was no place for that water to go. And so what it did is it just ripped out um, roads that were, were, were built along rivers, which is a very standard thing that we've and, – and very difficult to correct – once you have major highways, or not even major highways, but but local local roads going along rivers, it's very very difficult to to uh, to change that, and so that's it's a recipe for disaster, and um, we've not done enough to uh, to to solve that problem. A last thing for you, I guess I'm wondering if you see any remnants of this hurricane as you go out into the woods or, or the fields or other parts of our region? I mean, can you look around and say, yeah, that that's here or, or not here because of the, the hurricane of 1938? It, yeah, it, it, in the forest, you can definitely see signs of it. Uh, I My interest in the 38 hurricane was um, was kindled by the fact that, that our land blew down in 1938. We bought our land 50 years later, and I was told when we bought it that it was that it had been blown down um, in '38, and so I started learning how to how to read that. And there's a, a topography called um, uh, uh, pit and mound, uh, pit and mound topography in the woods that that shows where trees blew down. So. An image to keep in mind is that these trees didn't really, they didn't snap off at the trunks. Most of them blew down, and so they ripped up the the ground when they did. And the larger the tree, the larger the hole in the ground that it made. And so if you have in your woods um, a lot of undulating ground, um, that um, where you've got holes that look like they could have been dug by an excavator um, and then with, with a pile of, of dirt next to it. Those are remnants of, of the 38 hurricane. Hmm. Stephen Long's book is called 38, The Hurricane That Transformed New England. He spoke to us from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Norwich, Vermont. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, John. I enjoyed it. That hurricane and a series of others in the next few decades prompted the city of New Bedford, Massachusetts, to try something big to protect itself. 
WBUR's Lisa Mullins has the story. New Bedford is a huge fishing port, number one in the country in terms of revenue, the scallop capital of the world. It was once among the world's leading whaling centers. And New Bedford happens to be home to an enormous feat of civil engineering, the longest hurricane barrier on the East Coast. It totals three and a half miles and crosses New Bedford and Fairhaven Harbors. The barrier was built back in the 1960s. Work has begun on a massive $17 million hurricane dike to protect the harbor. The network TV anchor Chet Huntley narrated a local documentary about it. First of its kind ever to be built to hold back angry seas. Some people say New Bedford's future begins here at this huge seawall. It is huge. The winding wall of earth and boulders rises 20 feet from the surface of the water. It has two gates, 440 tons each. They can be closed in a storm to protect the harbor and the boats that seek shelter in it. I think the folks who are responsible for constructing the hurricane barrier deserve a great deal of credit for their initiative. John Mitchell is mayor of New Bedford. I think it's also fair to say that none of them uttered the terms climate change or rising sea levels either. I don't think anybody anticipated the the problem that we're facing now in 2017. Uh, It's fortuitous for New Bedford that we have this asset, which is designed to withstand a 16-foot storm surge, which is what you would get uh, essentially with a Category 3 hurricane at high tide here. So you say the designers of this, those who built it, could not have foreseen climate change of 2017 and well beyond that. What is the threat of climate change here in New Bedford? The threat for the foreseeable future is is obviously rising sea levels and the storm surges that uh, would come with them. It's a significant threat. New Bedford's the center of the commercial fishing industry on the east coast of the United States. There are a tremendous amount of maritime assets that are, are put at risk uh, if, if we don't prepare. Um, and uh, we have uh, to deal first and foremost with the safety of our population. So, uh, and it's not just hurricanes. Uh, it's Hurricanes tend to draw the most media attention, but you know, we have storm surges throughout the year, every season. The hurricane barrier certainly has protected and will continue to protect the city from storm surge. New Bedford's Director of Environmental Stewardship, Michelle Paul, says how long the barrier will protect the city from big storms is unknown. Sea levels are projected to rise from one foot to eight feet this century. A state-funded study a few years ago found that if sea levels were to rise four feet, the hurricane barrier would start to fail in a Category 2 hurricane. If sea levels were to rise one to two feet, the barrier would fail in a Category 3 storm. The study also found an increased threat to sewage pumping and treatment facilities and more. Michelle Paul says the city is already seeing problems. We've got storm uh, storm water infrastructure that's over 100 years old. And so we've got some outfalls that even now are inundated by water. Outfalls are outfall pipes. They carry storm water that might otherwise flood city streets and yards and basements and discharge the water into the ocean. When they were built, they were built above the, the high tide level. The sea level has already risen to the point where it's starting to fill up the outfalls even during just regular tides now. So seawater flows into the pipes, meaning stormwater can't flow out of them. The water then backs up and can cause flooding. So as we look to replace our aging infrastructure, we really can't just replace what's there. We really have to look and engineer for the next 100 or 200 years. So how vulnerable are residents here? How vulnerable is the infrastructure here, the natural area here? 
our infrastructure still works. Residents today are safe, but what we're trying to do is really learn as each event happens, where were we vulnerable and and where was the damage? We want to make sure that if people are building uh, new structures that they're you know built to the proper elevation. Um, and from a city standpoint, we want to make sure that the sewer pump stations, we're raising those pump stations and or flood proofing those pump stations to make sure that even in a time of storm, even if there were a flood, the sewer pump station is still able to operate and it doesn't it doesn't shut down. The hurricane barrier where all this began 50 years ago, they say it hasn't really been tested yet, um, that we haven't had a hurricane of the magnitude that would really put it to the test. Do you have confidence that it'll uh, do the job when it needs to? Well, uh, we are safe to say pleased that uh, we have this tremendous asset that protects much of our city. Again, New Bedford Mayor John Mitchell. At the same time, uh, we're careful not to treat it as though it was this, this impermeable line of defense against, uh, against any storm surge because the, the threat is only growing. New Bedford Mayor John Mitchell is also chair of the Energy Committee of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. He and Michelle Paul, the city's director of environmental stewardship, spoke with us along New Bedford's hurricane barrier. By the way, the barrier isn't only protecting local residents, it's bringing them to the waterfront. New Bedford has put a paved, lighted pathway along the top of the seawall for walking and bicycling, and on the day that we were there, a little rollerblading. That story was reported by Lisa Mullins with Lynn Jolliker and is part of WBUR's series Climate Change in Massachusetts. Coming up, sounds from the forest. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Steve Wilkes is a drumming professor at Berklee College of Music in Boston. He's also a former member of the Blue Man Group, and he's toured the world with the Empire Brass Quintet. But for his latest gig, Wilkes won't be making music. Instead, he's recording the sounds of the forest and compiling the first-ever audio map of the White Mountains. New Hampshire Public Radio North Country reporter Sean Hurley joined Wilkes on a recent sound-gathering trip. We walked beside the summer quiet chairlift at the Waterville Valley Ski Area, Steve Wilkes and I, on our way to the 4,000-foot summit of Mount Tecumseh. One of the things I wanted to do today is I just wanted to do a really wide stereo recording of the summit, regardless of what's there. Though Wilkes has only been recording for a few days, his audio map of the White Mountains is already studded with sounds, from the birds and bugs atop Mount Israel, to the train and crew noise of the Cog Railway. And now we're there on the bypass version of the uh, Cog Railway again. This was uh, built in the early 2000s. Wilkes has done this before. For three years, he roved and recorded Cape Cod, creating a sound map of the indigenous and characteristic sounds there. One early sound surprise for Wilkes here in the forest? I definitely expected a lot more birds. And as we can see on this trail right now, there's not a bird with an earshot. This lack of bird sound, however, revealed something else. It's just been so darn quiet. You can't find this on Cape Cod. There's nowhere on Cape Cod 
you will find it this this silent is quiet something that you can capture well yeah i think so maybe that's one of the artistic challenges of this you know i'm here recording the forest but how do i get across to everybody else the idea the quality of silence when recording is essentially you know a, a medium to record the opposite an artistic challenge wilkes has to face when we arrive on the quiet windless summit of mount tecumseh here's his recording Not absolute silence, Wilkes says, but a way toward it. Things like insects will oblige and fly by your mics. In some ways, I think that communicates as silence to people. After 10 minutes of recording, Wilkes gathers his gear. What we just did was an act of music. We were taking part in these sounds coming to life around us, simply by taking the time to acknowledge them and listen to them and appreciate them. We head back down the mountain. Um, I'm coming from the standpoint of a musician. I can't get away from that. In some way, this is all about music to me. The music of nature, the nature of music. The very act of listening, Wilkes suggests, is a form of music. And a good listener, a kind of musician. And I guess that means being a musician is more about how you take things in through the years, how you accept and respect things through the years, at least as much, if not more than performing something or writing something. Book stops to record a brook. So water has been kind of a huge theme for me. And it wasn't necessarily what I expected, but definitely the other surprise, and it shouldn't be, but has just been the people that I've encountered on the trails. And um, especially some of the people that I've been able to record Silence, water, people. Wilkes expected none of these to become his themes, which led to some initial uncertainty. Well, was there a moment when you recorded something or heard something up here where you realized, okay, this can work? Yeah. Um, South Fork of Hancock Branch, about a half mile in on the Greeley Ponds Trail. And I looked over at the right channel mic, and already a spider had crossed it and left that long thread of a web and it was glinting on top of the mic in the windscreen in the sunlight and I'm telling you man I thought now that is recording when the spider web starts showing up on your mics you are in the right place here then is the sound of a spider web glinting in the sun that's Sean Hurley reporting You can follow Steve Wilk's progress and listen to all of his recordings online. We've linked to the project on our website, nextnewengland.org. Now, not all the sounds of the forest are exactly soothing, as Chris Jensen found when he visited the North Country Moose Festival in the adjoining towns of Colebrook, New Hampshire, and Canaan, Vermont. He went to listen for the call of the moose. If you want to summon a bull moose, there are two calls you should send out into the forest, says Roger Irwin. He knows. For 15 years, he's been imitating the come-hither sounds of the September and October mating season as part of his wildlife photography business. There's the siren call of the cow in heat. And the sharp grunting of a bull, which triggers a confrontational territorial spirit. 
Oh, but before giving it a try, remember the old saying about being careful what you ask for. A bull moose can easily weigh 1,000 pounds, and it can run as quickly as a horse. Plus, Irwin says it arrives with, well, great expectations. They just usually just look at you a while. And Irwin says their eyesight's poor, so they could mistake you for a competitor. He remembers ever so clearly how once it all went wrong. He came in and he stood there for about five minutes, kept laying his ears back, and I knew I was in trouble. And I didn't have any trees to climb. I was in a bog. It looked like Irwin's obit would prominently mention moose. And so I backed up about 10 feet, and I turned my back to him. Thought maybe that wouldn't hurt as bad. And uh, he put his head down and charged me. It took him about three seconds. And I was watching him over my shoulder, and he went by me on the right. Irwin figures the bull caught a whiff of human and swerved. Some moose callers are hunters. Others just want a close look. There were some of each at the Moose Festival competition. We're going to start the moose calling contest shortly. Get ready to bring down the moose. That's Steve Bissonette of Whitefield. He is the master of moose ceremonies. There were 10 competitors. Among them was Kevin Hodnett of Arrow. Okay, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. First time. First time moose caller? Yeah. Okay. excellent first time try right there. Another was Karen Blodgett of Claremont, New Hampshire. I've even got a moose tattoo. She's got a moose tattoo and she's been practicing. I think this is the one. Are we ready? There was more grunting and moaning and finally the big announcement. And our number one 2017 moose calling champion of the entire world or at least Canaan, Vermont. Kevin Hodnett. Oh, I can't believe it. (laughs) That's Chris Jensen reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Maraska. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Betty Smith at Vermont Public Radio. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show or you've got feedback for us, consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it and it helps others find out about next. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and it's powered by WBUR Boston. Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.